Episode 88, India's Private Space Sector. Hello and welcome to AstroTalk UK. ATUK is a not-for-profit podcast produced by me, Gurbir Singh, amateur astronomer and writer based in the UK. I produce this podcast for my own education and share it as a free educational resource with anyone who has an interest. ATUK has no subscribers, ads, and you do not need to log in. For more information, please see the About page at www.astrotalkuk.org. No country has exploited space for social and economic benefits more than India. Its National Space Programme has delivered services for industry, government and private citizens for decades. As in other nations, the private space sector is now emerging in India. One name that pops up when discussing private and commercial space in India is Narayan Prasad. He has been instrumental in forging platforms where all stakeholders from the new space community can support each other and share views opinions and news. The platforms include WhatsApp, Blog, Telegram and a New Space India podcast. In this episode, he recalls his journey so far and his part in his own startup, SatSearch, as its COO. Narayan Prasad, your name is very well known within the Indian new space sector. You've got an interesting and varied background. Can you just tell us a little bit about your journey and how you've got to where you are today? Okay, it's uh, quite a long story because uh, unlike uh, many of the space enthusiasts who had uh, childhood dreams of becoming astronauts or so on, I had none of them. And uh, I was kind of pushed into the space sector by working with some friends who initially were doing work on uh, gliders and then uh, microwave vehicles or, or what popularly is called today as drones. Uh-huh. And uh, we built that uh, when we were in university undergraduate. And uh, Was that here in India? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, uh, we put together money that uh, our parents saved, right. uh-huh. uh, a few, six or seven of us. Uh-huh. And then uh, we put some money together and said, okay, let's build some uh, some of these gliders and uh-huh. microwave vehicles by ourselves. Right. And then, uh, you know, we won a, a, a place in a competition right. in uh, IIT Bombay, uh-huh. which is supposed to be one of the premier institutes working on aerospace technologies. Mm-hmm. So the university actually saw some potential in what we were trying to do. Mm-hmm. And until then, our university was not really funding any of our activities. So it was kind of self-funded through just the students pooling together money. Right. And uh, that sparked off interest. And they said, okay, you know, we propose to go to the U.S. Uh-huh. And uh, we participated in an aero design competition in 2009 in uh, Atlanta. Uh-huh. And uh, essentially, we uh, got a special mention by NASA for our design of our microwave vehicle. Right. And when we came back, uh, you know, like all the, the press was covering our oh. story. And then, right. uh, w- you know, the lab that we were working in our university, we uh, one of the scientists who mm-hmm. was collaborating with them from the Indian Institute of Astrophysics, mm-hmm. uh, 
um, said, you know, we could do something where we could work on satellites from aircrafts, I mean, from micro vehicles to then to satellites. And, and that, the aircraft that you built, was that a fixed wing or a rotary like a drone? Yeah, it was uh, basically a, a fixed wing uh, uh, aircraft. Right. Uh, sure. And the whole concept of that competition was uh, like a military theme right. where mm -hmm. you had to have um, essentially a backpack where the drone is sitting inside right. and you should be able to assemble that in three minutes okay. and right. ready to fly. You should be taking right. off the ground straight away, taking off the backpack in three minutes. Right, so it's tactical military operations. Yeah, so at that stage, you know, the, the technologies were still not completely there for like yeah. autopilot systems and things like that. And we're talking so, about 2008, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So th those were the days, the early days. Now, we you know, everything's taken off <laughs> in a very yeah. huge way. Right. Uh, so, but, you know, that was the introduction to moving into space and, and satellites and mm -hmm. getting to know more about, you know, how satellites are built or so on. Right. And so during those days, uh, in the last year of my engineering, I spent an entire year mm -hmm. thinking about how do you do structures in space and right. how do you design all of this. And we won, uh, we were the one of the only uh, teams in India which won the Indian National Academy of Engineering award for the best uh, bachelor thesis in India. Wow. And was that thesis a personal one or a team? It was a team of four people. The same guys who did the microwave vehicles right. also did the satellites. Okay. Right. And that's with uh, high recognition from high places in India and in and, and abroad. Yeah. So, and the Indian National Academy of Engineering is uh, a premier body of all the academics. Right. And uh, the culmination of the award happens in, uh, you know, for us, it was happening in the uh, Kundakulam, the nuclear facility. Uh, with, you know, like big names <laughs> yeah. coming in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's a closed door event uh -huh. uh, where you're invited and you on, only you and your family members are invited with all the premier engineers uh, yeah. around the country who are very well known mm -hmm. um, and you know we had a chance to interact with uh, some great people like I think that year even Narayan Murthy the IT giant you know uh -huh. uh, was awarded uh, the lifetime achievement award or something and so we had a lot of uh, good uh, vibes about the work we did uh -huh. uh, and uh, I spent uh, so my career took a very bad transition at that point of time because uh, that was also the peak of like the financial crisis <laughs> oh yes yeah right uh -huh. and uh, when i was then getting out of university uh -huh. because i spent uh, all my time in the university uh -huh. just thinking about these projects and building up teams on all these projects mm -hmm. i never thought what would be my life after right. my university okay. so and my other friends who are not doing normal things at university uh -huh. they you know they planned their career that i would you know write a GRE or some some entrance exams uh -huh. that they could fly abroad or get some scholarships or so on right and or you know they would go hunt for certain jobs with uh -huh. certain companies or so on right. had no such uh, plans in mind because uh, one from one day to the other it felt like you know you're stepping out to a world where you're completely unprepared mm -hmm. so my mom said uh, I know some people uh, mm -hmm. in the industry and uh, she was in the construction uh, technology right. industry right so uh -huh. And so she's one of, one, of, one of my friends is uh, running a firm which uh, manufactures, you know, mining equipment and right. so on. So why don't you go like work with them? Uh -huh. So I went there and um, I had an interview and they said, okay, everything's fine. Yeah. And uh, essentially they said, you can start off working here as a design engineer for 
mining equipment. Wow. <laughs> uh, and essentially, okay. these were like, yeah. you know, large uh, mining machines, right. uh, which would go out with companies like Sandvik using all these mining right. equipment in, in Europe and other places where some of the manufacturing of that was happening here. Right. So there's nothing original about it because the designs were from Europe and mm -hmm. the only thing you could do is, uh, you know, convert them, draft them, uh, make some modifications to suit things and then uh, right. you would then uh, put it into the production line. Mm -hmm. and But then you could learn certain things like how, how does design go from, you know, the drawing table to CAD models to then actually getting produced and then tested right. and then shipped. So that was the whole life cycle of it. Right. And um, I still remember because uh, 2009, I think I was working there and uh, my salary was 5,000 Indian rupees. Right. Um, and uh, six days of work. Right. And six, six days. Yeah, right. it was six mm -hmm. days of work. Mm -hmm. And uh, the place that I used to live to the factory was, I think, about 70 or 80 kilometers one way. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, didn't, you did not commute. You didn't go there every day. So I uh, shifted to my grandmom's place, which was about still about 40 kilometers away. Right. And yeah. um, so I used to do a half a bike journey and then half a factory bus journey right. every day. And... Uh, Essentially, uh, three months, uh, you know, something hit me saying, uh, what am I doing here? Uh, <laughs> right. I was trying to design, uh, you know, UAVs and working on satellites and suddenly I'm working underground. So, yeah. Oh, you actually were physically underground? No, as in... Oh, okay. Li right. yeah. Yeah, but it was quite a big change from something like unmanned aerial, small remote controlled aerial vehicles to heavy plant machinery using mining the other end yeah absolutely okay. and um, uh, so most of the times you know the work was also quite hectic uh, and i used to take it up as a challenge because the team was quite quite small mm -hmm. the design team was basically three people right. in a factory there and uh, i thought it was quite challenging at the beginning and sometimes i used to have even less than five minute lunch breaks oh, dear. so so how long did you last at that job then Three months, basically, right. and mm -hmm. uh, because in three months, I thought I went from learning everything that they did mm -hmm. on the shop floor, mm -hmm. uh, sitting from the design office and then going every day, uh, you know, getting the things out into the shop floor, getting the things programmed into the robots, mm -hmm. uh, getting them produced, and then seeing them coming out and uh, getting them tested for mm -hmm. many non-destructive tests and uh -huh. right. seeing how they ship it out. So the whole factory cycle, I could understand in more or less yeah. uh, three months. And that's when I thought, okay, you know what, this is uh, crazy. What I'm doing is crazy and mm -hmm. there's nothing that I can... Because, you know, it's the subconscious that, yeah. that tells you that, yeah. that things are not working. And and I think especially, you know, when you talk about the long travel, short lunch breaks, six days a week, not a terrific salary uh, for somebody who I think at that time probably had a lot more experience and um, felt you could be doing a lot better. So you moved from the mining company. Where to? Yeah, so for me, you know, the incentive was not really money or even the time because I never, uh, I never even now think about how much time I'm working or how much money am I, you right. know, earning yeah. because those are for me like very secondary things. It's all about getting the kicks of doing something yeah. that is crazy and, you know, that people have not done before and, and trying to establish something, right? Mm -hmm. So, and that at the three month mark, I thought, you know, this is not really like scalable at the moment for me because I'm just like another small cog in the whole 
system and I'm not able to get myself through into the levels where I will never be getting into a place where I could design an entire machine there, mm -hmm. right? Because they are only, their mandate there was to manufacture and ah. ship, mm -hmm. right? And that was for me not really that interesting. So uh, one day I was having lunch and something hit me and I said, I have to write my resignation now. Right. So I opened up uh, the Word document on my laptop and right. uh, just uh, wrote a resignation, printed it out, signed it, and uh, gave it to my manager and left. <laughs> and so, at that point, did you have somewhere else to go? No. So there was nothing planned. Uh, and uh, recognizably, a lot of people around me, including my family, were shocked right. that, uh, you know, how, um, you know, the, my other friends were trying to find jobs. And, you know, I hear I was, I mean, although I didn't have a high paying job or anything, yeah. but I still had something that others didn't have. Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, the other bit is, of course, um, uh, you know, they said uh, three months is too short to mm -hmm. get to know anything. And, uh, yeah. you know, you have to try out. You know, at least a couple of years before, you know, something is not sticking. So, but then, you know, I have never listened to anybody for a long time yeah. uh, since I was probably a child. So, I always went with my gut feeling for everything. Mm -hmm. And I always, uh, you know, uh, yeah, kind of introspect within myself and see, believe in my subconscious, right? So, so from that, what was the next milestone? So at that point of time, I'd seen uh, a lot of friends of mine apply to go abroad and study and, you know, build a career uh, mm -hmm. having much more knowledge. Right. So uh, then I thought, you know what, uh, the system here uh, will not allow me to, you know, either I should enter the government sector, which is ISRO, mm -hmm. uh, which was not that lucrative for me right. because essentially it will take you 30, 35 years to build up your career to a certain level. Right. Uh, and you might not have the choice to do whatever you want to uh -huh. at the beginning of your career as well. Right. Um, and then uh, the private sector was also kind of, uh, you know, not uh, very product oriented. Right. Uh, essentially, most of the vendors who were working in this row are not having any original IP of theirs. Uh, they right. basically depend on ISRO engineers to transfer the IP for right. them and then the services that they offer are more like manufacturing services. Right. And uh, so that's something that I really understood quite well by then. And the only transition that I saw was that, you know, the only way to do this is to get abroad. Uh -huh. And um, so I had a calculation that I had to make at that point of time because, of course, I come from a, a pretty middle class uh, family. So mm -hmm. I couldn't uh, ask my parents to, you know, send me to Stanford or to how, you know, whatever place, right. uh -huh. uh, which would cost millions of dollars for us or even thousands of dollars. That right. was something that was impossible. Uh -huh. I couldn't even afford possibly right. applying to three or four universities in U.S because the application costs are itself, <laughs> really right? right. Uh, so, yeah. and um, even with uh, 5,000 Indian rupees as a salary, you cannot even apply to a single <laughs> right. university in the US, right? Okay. So, uh, so that's something that I had as a constraint. Uh -huh. And uh, uh, essentially then I thought Europe is a good place. Right. Uh, also because uh, I had known that uh, in US there are limitations for Indian nationals yeah. to get into the workforce. Uh, because uh, you, if you want to work on deeper technical projects or uh, which need U.S. citizenship, uh, you know, most of the Indians who uh, get into the U.S., uh -huh. they uh, actually go on to do their PhDs after their master's and so on. And right. uh, if they want to get into the more industry aspects of it, mm -hmm. be because of the nationality requirements, you know, they, they stick there for a longer time. So is that something unique to 
America, and what did, that didn't apply to European countries that you were at that time looking at? It does apply to a number of European countries as well. So, for example, in France, if you want to work at NES, for example, you need to be like a French national or so on. Right. So, there are in European countries as well, there are some limitations. But uh -huh. if you look at places like Germany or Sweden or other places, uh, uh -huh. the German Space Agency has people from at least 45 or 50 countries. Okay. So, um, Europe was going to be your next destination. Where yeah. did you end up? So, uh, because I was so eager to get into studying again, I ended up applying to like 20 different universities. Which 20? I, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, with, with, you know, basically my criteria was they shouldn't have any application fees right. or such and so on. So, I ended up... Uh, so that's quite interesting. Uh -huh. So, in, if you're applying to universities in the US, you have to pay for the application. Yes. But in Europe, you didn't have to pay. No. Maybe that's why you can actually make 20 applications it yes. just wouldn't have been possible in the US okay. yeah exactly that's, that's right carry on uh, and um, so you know it's also the bottleneck of financing and you yeah. know getting to getting to the position uh -huh. right to to the, to the destination you need to also survive in the process yeah so uh, and also the other bit is also that uh, i was also underconfident of uh, cracking entrance exams like uh, mm -hmm. you know the gre uh, because, um, you know, these are entrance exams that are based on time and right. certain aptitude uh, mm -hmm. questions, which I am not really geared to answer in a certain way, because normally I take more time in answering something or, uh -huh. uh, or I, whatever I feel like is not interesting for me, I just give up right. on mm -hmm. it. So right. I was quite sure that uh, if I invested in writing one of these examinations, I will fail at it uh, miserably and my chances will also go down. Right. And the interesting thing in Europe was that they wouldn't care for such examinations. Right. So, uh, so I had all these things that are uh -huh. uh, prepared, you know, in terms right. of uh, doing a lot of research uh -huh. uh, on academic entrances, right? right? So, uh, I applied to 20 or 21 of them and I got, I only was rejected in one place. Wow. The, the, <laughs> the, the other places I uh, actually got through. Uh -huh. And um, essentially, the criteria there was uh, quite simple uh -huh. that uh, you, uh, I wanted to enter a place where uh, I had uh, potentially a scholarship or extremely low mm -hmm. uh, fee to get in. Uh -huh. And um, I had a couple of places where it had given me a scholarships, but then I found this one program uh, called Space Master, uh, yeah. which mm -hmm. is the European Union funded uh, program. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, essentially, there you could go to different universities. There was a consortium of eight universities. Uh -huh. And uh, the first year you went six months to Germany and then six months to Sweden. Right. And mm -hmm. the second year you could choose based on your topic of interest, right. a particular university in the eight countries, including Cranfield in the UK. Right. Okay. Right. So, so you spent some time in Germany, in Sweden, and where else? In so then I chose to go to France, France. actually. Right. And, uh, you know, just to give you a, a sense of how difficult was it even mm -hmm. during that those times, mm -hmm. uh, um, 2009, uh, 10, uh, I was uh, the the German visa application. Mm -hmm. It needed something like uh, I think at that time was 6,000 euros or something uh, as uh, as your living costs for oh, a year, right? That you had to put in a bank, oh, okay. right? Right. And uh, which is essentially that that time was like three lakh Indian rupees. It was for me even hard to get that three lakh Indian rupees as a loan from an Indian bank. <laughs> so this is a requirement 
put on you as a, a potential visitor to Germany so that the German government mm -hmm. uh, is confident that you can support yourself for the duration of your stay. Exactly, because there was no tuition fee in Germany. Ah, I see. So even for Indian nationals, no tuition no. fees? Most of the German universities are free. The only tuition fee is like, you know, 200 or 300 euros, which is right. registration or semester ticket or something like that. Now, again, I wasn't aware of that. I know in the EU that's true, but for Indian nationals, I thought it would be. What about France? Uh, did they also have this requirement for a deposit of a certain amount before you came? No, well, the good thing is that uh, immediately when I entered the Space Master program, uh, I was still looking out for uh, scholarships uh -huh. and I applied to uh, some of them and um, eventually I got the French Embassy Scholarship for Indians. Right. So, which meant that uh, the French government would fund my education. Uh, that's when, you know, the requirements were all eased out. Right. Uh, yeah. And everything became extremely simple for me. And uh, right. I did not really have to worry about money at that point of time. And that's for the two years of the Space Masters course yeah. in Europe. Yeah. Okay. So, in that two years, you were in France, Germany and Sweden? Yeah. And then when that course finished, what did you move on to do then? During the second year, I spent six months in France and then I went back to Germany to DLR. Right. And uh, in Bremen, I was working on these uh, greenhouse modules for uh, Mars and Moon. Now, so this is, you finished your education in Space Masters. No, during the time. One, so right. the last six months mm -hmm. is when you have to do your thesis. I see. Right. right. During that time, I was in DLR. Right. Uh -huh. And um, so essentially, a friend of mine called Sanjay here, uh, we had known each other even before Space Master. Right. And uh -huh. we saw that the small satellite sector was taking off. Right. And we had both been a part of small satellite missions in India. Oh, I see. And uh, it happened that we were both also you know, got into the same program as well. Uh -huh. uh, we thought that we could actually go back to India and really experimenting on building a company uh, in India immediately after we finished the master program. It's interesting. If I just take you back to, you said you were, you could see this interest in small sats in India. Is that about 2010, 11, 12? Is that the time period you're looking at? Yeah, but even before actually, because since 2007-8 itself, we were working on it in India. So just tell me about that, because that is very early days across the world, let alone in India. Not oh. really, because if you look at uh, the CubeSat history, okay. the CubeSats have been around since the late 90s. Right. Okay. So, uh, so they were around already for like almost 10 years. But the idea that that's where the new commercial market was in space, yeah, that, that was quite new and to Pick yeah. it up in India so early on, I thought it was quite... Uh, yeah, yeah. so there were people like, uh, you know, like Gomspace and uh, the other people uh -huh. uh, from Delft uh, so on, who had university programs that were spinning out into companies uh -huh. as well. And then we saw that trend that uh, right. university research converted into spin-off companies mm -hmm. prominently, uh -huh. right? And we thought... We in India should be able to do this because we'll be cost competitive than right. all yeah. of these guys. Right. And if uh -huh. we come out, uh, uh -huh. we could really, you know, yeah. build this up into a business. Uh, and that's the the idea that we could actually come back to India and experiment on these and, uh, you know, move forward. Uh, so that was, uh, and we saved some money during the scholarship days. Right. At one point of time, I was, uh, uh, you know, getting paid two times because I had my scholarship from France and right. I also was getting paid by DLR right. for working there. Right. So, uh, so I had 
quite some money left mm -hmm. uh, in uh, yeah through my scholarship and we then came back and said okay let's uh, let's start the company and then let's see where it goes okay that's really fascinating um, again I'm still I'm very surprised and impressed that you picked up on the issue of small satellites so early on Sir Martin Sweeting and Surrey satellites is where it pretty much kicked off. Did you have much interaction with Surrey satellites in the early days? Is that where the motivation came from for you? Yeah, actually I had a lot of interactions with uh, Sir Martin Sweeting himself. Uh -huh. So I had written a few papers and I had, uh, you know, emailed him a few of them and uh -huh. he he pro gave excellent views on some of them. Okay. And uh, he the thing is, even though he was at a level where he had seen the entire array of things going from university research, USART to SSTL and he was really approachable. Right. That was for me really fascinating because right. here's a guy who has seen it all and mm -hmm. is at a level which is at the very highest levels of yeah. industry recognition. Uh -huh. But you could still approach him as a student and email him, and he would reply himself, not as right. not as his secretary <laughs> or you know, not somebody else. And he would have read some of the things that you have sent him, and uh -huh. then he would reply on them. Right. And uh, for me, like you know, that that was also very interesting yeah. as to the cultural differences right. uh, from. India to uh -huh. uh, the Western world was also stark in that nature. And by that you mean, generally speaking, if you do contact somebody high up in Israel, generally don't get a response. And if you're lucky, you might get a response from their secretary. Yeah, <laughs> possibly also because it may also be a numbers game in India because they may receive, I don't know, maybe thousands of emails right. that they that they get on these subjects. Mm. But uh, that's uh, that's how it is. Right. Okay. So. So you've got your Space Masters, you met up with Sanjay, you're thinking of branching out on your own. What ideas did you come up with at that point? The idea was to see if we could, uh, you know, develop a newer standard to the CubeSat standard. Oh. Because CubeSat standard had a lot of uh, problems at that point of time is what we thought. Because uh -huh. uh, essentially, when you launch a CubeSat, there is a lot of uh, mass that you are carrying which are kind of unnecessary because you cannot launch a CubeSat by itself mm -hmm. on a rocket. You need to have, you know, like a deployer. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you go talk to many people today, even mm -hmm. in the industry today, unfortunately, they have to pay for the mass of the deployer right. uh, along with the CubeSat. Right. And uh, <clears throat> the, the uh, I mean, for us, that was kind of stupid at that point of time to think that, you know, you're paying for like dead weight. Right. And uh, instead, why don't you just come up with a independent form factor, which is kind of a little bit bigger. Right. Uh, which today what people call as like, you know, 12U or 16U or something right. like that. Okay. So they have this nomenclature today going on. Right. Uh, but at that point of time, nobody called it like a 12U or a 16U or something. Right. But you, you, the vision you had was that your uh, small sat would be much bigger than a CubeSat. Yes, because it also gave a little bit more power. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you look at uh, early days of CubeSat, there was almost nothing that uh, it could do which was commercially viable mm -hmm. uh, because essentially it would have uh, a, you know, a maximum of two solar cells mm -hmm. per panel and then you, you know with two watts of power you could hardly do right. like, uh, you could do some comms, you could do some very high resolution imaging yeah. but everything was a struggle because the data rates were slow, everything yeah. was kind of and you know at that point of time uh, more more than half of CubeSat would always fail. 
Right. Uh, it's just the reliability issue. Exactly. And you also had this problem with dead weight. Essentially, yeah. mm -hmm. you have to have the right. deployer up and you paid right. for the deployer mass and uh -huh. you paid for the actual deployer right. and all of this. So we thought, okay, <coughs> you know what? If you put all that money together, mm -hmm. you could build slightly bigger mm -hmm. and you could get a little bit more uh, power mm -hmm. and you could accommodate a little bit bigger volume. Right. And uh, so we saw that uh -huh. at that point of time right. then itself. And did that trigger a, a startup between you? Yeah, so... So what was that and when did it start? So we registered, I think, the company in 2012. This is Druva Space. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but then the idea was al already around for like two or two and a half years. Right. And the idea was to launch, uh, to, to fabricate small satellites. In India. In India. Yeah. And how would you, at that time, um, envisage launching them? Through in India or anybody who, wherever you... Yeah, for, for us, it was a matter of uh, wherever the cost was low. So, right. and it also, you know, coincided <clears throat> quite well with uh, India's program mm -hmm. because uh, at that point of time, mm -hmm. India did not really have a small satellite uh, program that was uh, of the size of 10 kilograms or 20 kilograms. Mm -hmm. Right, so if you look at uh, ISRO's uh, roadmap at that point of time, mm -hmm. it was more like, uh, yeah, of course, you know, like YouthSat or something like that was around, mm -hmm. uh, which was still like 100 kilograms or 150 kilogram satellites. Right. And uh, 150 so kilogram satellites. For, that, for them, that was small. Yeah. <laughs> right. For 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 them, you know, there mm -hmm. there was not really this what they today call as the INS series, the Indian uh, Nano Satellite System series. Right. right? Mm -hmm. So that was not existent. Uh -huh. And uh, what we thought was that uh, with us stepping in with that uh, you know that capability uh -huh. it would actually complement what ISRO would then have right and uh, we could do various experiments or various things with that uh, yeah. and it could provide us a test bed for new technologies or new payloads or you know trying to get things uh, into orbit quite quickly and testing mm -hmm. things out and that was the thesis right okay now um, since then Druva Space is now producing satellites, small satellites? Uh, not really still, because uh, what happened is that uh, once we came in here, we tried to tap into the local market by seeing, you know, if we could work with universities or work with uh, even ISRO or work with the defense or uh -huh. so on. That was the immediate uh, approachable people uh, who had some kind of requirements. Mm -hmm. And um, what we saw was that uh, they were kind of... Uh, hard to crack the market because one the universities uh, were essentially you know most of the universities in India still I guess look for just uh, front cover articles that they flew a satellite mm -hmm. the what the students want in universities and what uh, versus the what the management wants in the university in India is always something <laughs> very different right and that's something that uh, we noticed after talking to a lot of them uh -huh. And and so that that was getting uh, too much in the way of doing things, mm. and at the same time, um, even within ISRO, because we were so young and so new into the system, mm -hmm. to approach anybody who was at any level a decision maker was extremely tough, right. because um, mm -hmm. you come in here and you you're not uh, having uh, you know a legacy of having said i worked in nasa for like 15 or 20 years or <laughs> i worked in so and so place for so many things uh -huh. uh, that you could get an audience uh -huh. 
right. uh, any serious audience, right? So, and people would say, okay, you know what, these kids are just coming and they're just having some fun and we don't care really. So, I still remember uh, when we started approaching ISRO to the day I actually met uh, the then chairman Kiran Kumar. Mm -hmm. It took us, I think, two and a half or three years to actually work up the ladder to be able to reach the chairman's uh, office to present something. Two to three years? Two and a half or three years, I think, was the timeline. I, I still remember. Right. Because essentially you go knock on the security guard's door and then you knock on his uh, higher boss and then you go up and you go up and right. then you would meet somebody who's a director and then you go right. trying to meet the chairman. So uh, so that was the kind of uh, you know transition and hierarchy also at that point of time. And it was, uh, yeah, you had to work up on all of these things and essentially anything respect to the programmatic aspects of ISRO, you know, nobody will comment except the chairman himself. Right. So was the then chairman Kiran Kumar instrumental in helping you establish or get Druva Space going? Problem then and problem now is that um, uh, ISRO has already a set uh, roadmap. You know, they have a set roadmap for a number of years uh-huh. and uh, even now if you look at their roadmap they have a charted out plan for the next five years on building 50 or 60 satellites right. and uh, the budgets from the government of India are sanctioned right. to all of them mm-hmm. and, at, and at that point of time uh, small satellites were not on the radar of ISRO and mm-hmm. uh, in fact my interaction I remember with Kiran Kumar was uh, you know, to mostly tell him about what is happening with new space scene around the world first. Mm-hmm. Um, about all the constellations that are going to come up. Right. And, uh, and, and, and that meeting I thought that, okay, you know, you know what, these guys are having so many things to do with probably with their own roadmap mm-hmm. that they don't look so much uh, outside. And this was also not the days where, you know, SpaceX was extremely popular or so on, right? right? Because uh, yeah. now everybody knows even ISRO or otherwise, yeah. you know, Elon right. Musk is launching mm-hmm. these reusable rockets and these were like the unsexy days. So where uh, unsexy days because startups were not really called as startups right. <laughs> <coughs> or, you know, none, none of the whole uh, of the uh, f- like fandom around uh, s- startups or so on. And also no <coughs> fandom around people like Elon Musk or so on. The boss that exists now just wasn't there then. Yeah. Um, you mentioned new space. Uh, what exactly is new space and specifically new space India? So 2015, uh, actually when we had spent three years in all of this and learning about the ecosystem in India, I thought uh, there are people who I know in the system Mm -hmm. who actually don't know each other. So for example, engineers would only speak to engineers or, uh, you know, mission directors or somebody who would speak Uh only to them. And then a gang of retired ISRO scientists would speak among themselves. Mm -hmm. And... uh, And if you look at uh, the other people in the ecosystem, they were interesting policy people doing policy work. Uh They were interesting uh, lawyers Uh uh, trying to do, you know, some interesting things Uh in space. Uh, They were artists Uh who were doing some space-related stuff. They were journalists who were doing space-related stuff. Uh And uh, essentially what I did is one day I went to my home and I put out a huge chart Mm -hmm. and... uh, I kind of drew clouds of people who I knew right. and uh-huh. the theme of their work uh-huh. 
and uh, just to know who's uh, who's around in india and who's doing what mm-hmm. right and then the thing that appeared to me is that why aren't these people connecting together right. <laughs> and so that was like the culmination of uh, trying to build a community right. where we would actually bring all of these people together mm-hmm. so that uh, one everybody brings their different perspectives into space mm-hmm. uh, and the space activities then the other is uh, everybody can create some kind of consensus of how how we move forward new space india and the new space india community that you helped establish is a way of bringing together <clears throat> the diverse people in that field including engineers artists lawyers and journalists yeah so new space i would say the definition for me would be space activities uh, which are being pursued by businesses mm-hmm. uh, which have a business to business or a business to consumer focus mm-hmm. right and uh, unfortunately most places around the world uh, right. what happens is that people project this as uh, what they do yeah. but they end up uh, you know selling uh, old wine in new bottles <laughs> of uh, right. trying to they become right. b2g again right so yeah. so um what are the platforms that you've used in building this community it's very simple the thing is uh, all we try to i try to do is i never try to think at scale okay. the simplest thing that i saw was that uh, one i had views of myself uh-huh. and uh, the simplest thing i could have done at that point of time is that um, i could have put that out on a blog uh-huh. so i just started newspaceindia.com and registered it and put up a free wordpress theme right. you know blog uh, and then started right. writing on it on different yeah. views right. and the other thing that i saw is that uh, of course smartphones were getting prominent in india and mm-hmm. messaging was getting prominent and right. whatsapp was getting big in india mm-hmm. and uh, uh, so the whole idea was just to create a whatsapp group saying mm-hmm. uh, right. uh, and the goal was very simple i didn't have much time to do this so i right. thought let me add one person to the group every day right <laughs> in the in that sense i in a you know in 6 months or 7 months i will have the group full right. of interesting people uh-huh. and uh, so it was me and a couple of people who i know i just added them saying right. you know what you're doing interesting things in space i'm starting this group right. uh, let me add this you know, idea to this and right. then on the blog i started writing uh, was writing for a lot, even during my undergraduate days uh, mm-hmm. i was responsible for everything in documentation and writing so right. so i practiced writing 750 words every day regardless of what i do really so <laughs> and i did for for a long time right so so that helped me put out a lot of articles uh-huh. uh and uh, uh, over time i also thought uh, i should educate the international uh, audience by uh, you know writing really academic stuff at serious levels okay so and then i came out with uh, papers uh-huh. uh, with uh, which kind of provide an extensive overview from a space policy perspective mm-hmm. on how the indian space program is working what are the dimensions how is it being diversified how are the isro centers working how's the industry working mm-hmm. i wrote all of that down right. because nobody had that uh, written down any anywhere uh-huh. at that point of time right. so that was for a more technical uh-huh. uh, audience international audience but i also wanted to educate the indian audience which uh-huh. are also a little bit technical and at the policy level mm-hmm. so then i thought you know it's maybe good to go with a think tank in india mm-hmm. and publish it openly so that it's right. accessible to everyone right and then i wrote a uh, you know few papers with the observer research foundation right. on uh, the status of small satellites in india the road map right. for defense space and mm-hmm. you know many of the different aspects and that document is available for free download i'll include a link in the notes yeah yeah so 
uh, a lot of my writings are available uh, openly as white papers through these uh, think tanks. And uh, one of the interesting tidbits there was that uh, once I wrote some of these papers, mm -hmm. uh, I sent it to some uh, prominent people uh -huh. just so that you know they. Uh, I didn't. I didn't expect a reply back. Mm -hmm. You know because I knew that maybe they will not like it or they will ignore it or they might not even read it. Right, uh -huh. but. Uh, uh, I had at that point of time I even had sent it sent a copy to Dr. Abdul Kalam's uh, email uh -huh. uh, during that time. But right. interestingly, uh -huh. after two or three months, I got a call one afternoon, and uh, the guy said, "I am uh, uh, Kalam's uh, secretary calling, uh -huh. right. and uh, we've noticed your paper, and uh, you know, uh, Dr. Kalam wants uh, you to come and meet him in uh, Delhi uh -huh. at his house." All right. We ended up going there, and that was an interesting meeting. Uh, I think it was maybe what just a year or something before he passed away. What sort of year are we talking about now? I think 2014 or 2015 was right. the year. Uh, I thought, you know, most of the people in ISRO they have um, a lot of love for the institution as they should, mm -hmm. and um, they most of them, you know, are come and come to defend. So the interesting thing that I thought at that point of time is that look, there is people here who have been running a legacy system, mm -hmm. and sometimes the the legacy system that they are running is not really at the forefront of things that are happening. Mm -hmm. And if you propose some of these things that are at the forefront, it may look really bad for them because mm -hmm. it doesn't really match or it is in tune with what they do. Mm -hmm. So it's quite interesting where you see sometimes this as a view of putting you know the institution ahead of the country's interests mm -hmm. you know <laughs> yeah. so the institution's interests for mm -hmm. that person becomes bigger than mm -hmm. what is in the interest of the progress of the country etc so just tell me about the meeting with abdul kalam and uh, just summarize the outcome what it meant for you yeah, so the we went. I think we had um, an appointment at eight thirty in the evening mm -hmm. at his house, yeah. and um, it was quite interesting because uh, you know before us there were some nuclear physicists who were meeting him, <laughs> and you know after us there were some bunch of thirty kids waiting in a school bus, and so I was Thank thinking, you, you know what, uh, you know. This is just like crazy because, uh, you know, at one point of time he's talking to like nuclear physicists yeah. and then the other meeting is with kids. And yeah. so the range of meetings and the range yeah. of people meeting him was interesting. And uh, uh, the other thing is when we went in and we talked about what we are trying to do, mm -hmm. I thought he will say, okay, you know, you know what, you should work with this row or some, some advice like that, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, that was like the logical thing that I was prepared to hear, mm -hmm. right. But then he did like the almost opposite because he said, uh, your biggest problem is will be throw itself. Oh, right. <laughs> and for me that was very interesting in that meeting because uh, he uh, had uh, you know for uh, the foresight uh -huh. of telling that whatever you are trying to do and whatever you are proposing is kind of too radical at this point of time in the system and you might get the blowback from the system for doing any of ki these kinds of activities. And here is a guy who would know because he was with ISRO even before it was called ISRO. Uh, he led the project for the SLV3, highly recognized uh, um, engineer, but also later became the president of India. And for him to say that, I was quite quite surprised. Were you were you shocked? Did you exp express your surprise at uh, his response? 
Yeah, I was uh, quite surprised, but the thing is, I didn't want to dig deeper into yeah. that topic uh, <laughs> with him. Right. Uh, so essentially, I took that advice, and mm-hmm. uh, and I thought uh, that gave me a lot of uh, insight into believing further in my subconscious because mm-hmm. I was thinking, you know what. Uh, here is uh, some things that are going wrong and i was thinking why are these things going wrong right. and why aren't we getting any kind of traction with all of these uh-huh. and at that point of time there was not also a big ecosystem for investing into space right by any of the uh, you know investors in india or so on so because uh, it's still very early days of uh, many of the startups maturing and exi- exiting and Right. Even VC funds were like you know by the handful. Not even like uh, right. five or six of them prominently investing mm. in any other really good technology areas. Most of them investing in uh, copied ideas from the US right. uh, into f- that would fit into the Indian ecosystem. And, and is it right to conclude that following your conversation with Abdul Kalam, that you concluded that actually, despite the fact that you weren't getting making any traction with Israel. The problem wasn't with you and what you were proposing, but with Israel itself, and gave you some confidence to continue. Yeah, so it was more about uh, the access to the end uh, markets, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, what we were proposing is that um, a full system. Essentially, if you would say, for example, you know, we would go to uh, the defense uh, folks and say, you know what, uh, we have done um, studies on most of the defense systems today mm-hmm. that are around in, uh, which are compatible with uh, nano satellites and CubeSats. Mm-hmm. And we have some architectures in place and we have some, uh, you know, projects in mind, uh, mm-hmm. which would help you establish some things here uh, in either communications or other activities mm-hmm. and uh, we would often go to Delhi make presentations uh, left right and center to all stakeholders and so on mm-hmm. but then the question they would always tell us is uh, you know what we always procure things with ISRO or ISRO builds our satellites mm-hmm. and uh, even today that's the case right. where even if you I don't believe that even if you go to Delhi and or any other end user today in India uh-huh. uh, except maybe the private sector uh, corporate who might want to use some mm-hmm. space applications or so on. Mm-hmm. You'll hear this uh, saying, you know, there is no process to actually procure directly from uh, the industry directly at a full solution level. That's interesting. Now, I want to dig down into that. But yeah. first, let's just talk about the state of play of the private space sector, the startups. Now, there's many startups in, in India in the space sector they're producing materials like carbon nanotubes or ion engines or brokerage services for launch services even 3d printing can you give a specific example of some interactions you've had with um, startups that are um, making some headway in india today two or three yeah sure so uh, if you look at uh a company like Bellatrix, for example, right? Mm-hmm. So they had uh, quite a lot of traction working with ISRO. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and Bellatrix do, what's their product or service? That- so they, were, they are producing uh, thrusters, mm-hmm. a new generation of thrusters, uh, which uh, one, you know, they're looking at uh, electric right. and against the usual chemical uh, architecture. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the 
vision that they had was quite simple that uh, isro is still using the traditional uh, you know uh, chemical thrusters for the geo satellites and the idea was that india i think did not have any um, satellites at that point of time mm -hmm. or isro roadmap was not very clear to adopt uh, full electric satellites mm -hmm. and if you look at boeing and other companies around the world they already had implemented a lot of these architectures and the satellite mass would reduce by more than 60% uh, if these uh, changes were to be made and uh, so the guys from Bellatrix I think the chairman ISRO at that time Kiran Kumar recognized mm -hmm. the potential and uh, worked with them very closely and uh, they gave them an order to work uh, you know to do the technology and to deliver uh, a thruster for the ISRO satellites right. uh, but then you know that's uh, uh, firstly, they had to uh, establish a kind of process to do that because mm -hmm. that's the first time that a company was actually getting to do something independently as a product. Mm -hmm. uh, because most often it would be ISRO saying to an industry that here's the uh, IP that we have developed and we need you to produce it. Right. Okay. And this is, in this case, it's Bellatrix bringing in something completely new yes. in, the, in the first instance. Yeah. And what they're producing uh, is ion thrusters, so it's yeah. in-orbit maneuvering, not launched from the surface of the Earth. Exactly. And it produces um, reduction in mass and, of course, extends the lifetime yes. of the uh, spacecraft in yeah. orbit. So that's one example of a, a space startup. Another one? So the other example I can give is of Nopo Nanotechnologies, for example, and Gadadhar was also a good friend of mine. Um, he's been working on uh, producing carbon nanotubes. Right. Uh, and it's quite funny that he's again doing it out of India because it's the least uh, you know, approachable market for him as well. Right. Most of the people working on carbon nanotubes are always uh, in the US or Japan or other places but then he's adamant about you know building it out of india and he's built a reactor that is producing these carbon nanotubes here in india uh, if you look at his roadmap i think uh, he also then tried to work with this row in uh, at a sub component like a component level uh -huh. where uh, he's working on uh, getting uh, essentially star camera uh, or camera sensor based uh, coatings Mm -hmm. which need uh, you know black surfaces right. to absorb as much light as possible uh -huh. uh, and you know he's found one headway of uh, working with this row on right. getting the coatings uh, you know into the space uh -huh. which are coatings based on carbon nanotubes right. so uh, so it's a it's a it's a struggle of you know finding that but i think mm. even for him it took maybe 3 or 4 years to right. to get headway into the system but the whole idea here is that uh, the new space companies in india mm -hmm. uh, isro may be their first customer or maybe the second customer or third but the idea is that right. they kind of are trying to create their own products Mm -hmm. or services that are independently that can independently serve in the international markets and, and carbon nanotubes really is a high-tech material a bit like graphene but it's not graphene and it's uh, got many applications including the highly absorbent dark surfaces that you're after and um, I suspect that in the next few years we'll see increasing number of products all used on spacecraft made from carbon nanotubes. What are the kind of difficulties that space startups have operating within India? The main issue in India is that um, if you are a full satellite system integrator or a service provider, as in you are trying to do what ISRO is trying to do right. uh, in your own office, uh -huh. uh, trying to build your own satellite or your own system. Right. Um, 
you will face a lot of difficulties because there is uh, the regulatory setup is kind of not there. So <laughs> let's say you know I want to build my own satellite, yeah. and uh, um, firstly I would need um, frequencies right. to operate. Mm -hmm. And if you look at uh, frequencies in India, although space has been allocated frequencies, mm -hmm. most of them are coordinated between government departments mm -hmm. in, in this case it would be ISRO and the Department of Telecommunications right. and uh, they would talk to each other as government to government departments and right. get the frequencies allocated and so on right. but now if you say the private sector needs frequency allocations mm -hmm. and not for operating transponders that's a different ball game okay. but this is for let's say remote sensing satellites uh -huh. uh, then you would say there is no such mechanism still established very well established on um, you know how these frequencies will be allocated what uh, uh, who will be the point of contact for them and uh, what the process for all of it mm -hmm. uh, of course logically the dot will be the point of contact because they are the ones uh, doing all the regulatory aspects for frequencies but then the process to actually getting the hold of the frequencies and applying for them uh, will it be you know first come first serve it will be you know leased out in a certain fashion for a certain price or or of a certain time so all these things are not really well established. And DOT is the Department of Transport. Telecommunications. Telecommunications, yeah. beg your pardon. And they are part of the Indian government and any frequencies that uh, are available to Indian businesses have to come through the Indian government or can private sector uh, operators go directly to the ITU and, and get it? No, nobody can go to the ITU directly and also this uh, uh, with respect to these frequencies, uh, you know, the every country has a national frequency allocation plan, mm -hmm. which is basically what frequencies are allocated for what operations within the country, country. right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so there needs to be kind of uh, uh, a process to actually establishing how all of this will be made available to the private sector, especially if somebody is planning to do a remote sensing right. constellation or so on. So, and the other bit is of course, uh, you know, for example, if you have to export a particular satellite outside of mm -hmm. India or, you know, export images or the other services. Mm -hmm. So there's many, 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 many aspects uh, today that are still open uh, uh, to discussion because if you look at uh, US, for example, right, so mm -hmm. there are four different agencies that are involved in regulating space. So if you are building a, uh, a launch vehicle company in the US, you mm -hmm. have FAA that does most of your licensing and supervision kind of activities. Federal Aviation Administration. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. And then um, the Indian equivalent of that is the DGCA, which is the Director General of Civil Aviation. Right. right? And uh, uh, so if tomorrow a rocket uh, startup is trying to launch something in India, it is still not clear if DGCA will be able to regulate that or not because drones have been very quite reasonably well regulated in India uh -huh. now right. and DGCA has taken over the drone regulations. Right. So, but we still don't know if, you know, DGCA will take control of anybody who is from the private sector and wants to launch Mm -hmm. uh, satel uh, satellites or test rockets essentially right. um, and you know if they will set all the rules of the game uh, and mm -hmm. so on so uh, so that's the one part okay. of it mm -hmm. the second part of it is uh, FCC and the role of FCC the, as the Federal Communication Commission exactly in, in the and, US. Uh -huh. and, and in India the equivalent is the Wireless Planning Commission 
right which is under the department of telecommunications ah, okay. and so they kind of need to come together and mm-hmm. set the rules of the game on how the frequencies and what bands and what how much will be available for the private sector and the process for all of it right. and then the third is uh, noaa right. uh, which is what the national oceanic uh, uh administration right so uh, so so they are actually atmospheric and atmospheric administration i think and then uh, yeah right so they are actually involved in licensing the remote sensing folks mm-hmm. on distribution of imaging satellites and you know, the images from the satellites uh-huh. and so on so that is a role that uh, still not clear who would do uh, because in india. in india you there is a regulatory framework for actually getting access to isro imagery mm-hmm. or getting access to foreign images through an isro entity called nrsa national remote sensing agency uh-huh. right? right but then if you there's no clarity if you yourself are producing from the private sector right certain imagery how will you able to be able to distribute all of it and if you can export it and so on so those are also kind of challenges that are okay. still in the gray zone and then if you look at um, export related work uh, most of the work today is done by the either previously was the state department now nowadays it's a lot of in the commerce department in the us mm-hmm. and in india's case it's still uh, not clear uh, on all the uh, india still ha- has a um, export control law which mm-hmm. is comprehensive it's called comet uh and satellite parts uh, briefly mentioned in it uh-huh. but it's not very very extremely clear on different class and different aspects of component level stuff so there is uh, quite a lot of gray zones and all of this mm-hmm. and um, uh so we need to kind of uh, be sure uh, to do business and and that's what you mean by the absence of a regulatory framework it yeah. just doesn't exist so if you're starting out in the private space sector you got all these uncertainties and no matter even becoming operational if you don't know which frequency is available to you um if you using uh, earth observation material what can you do with it after you've got it um and presumably same thing with uh, if you're building manufacturing satellites in india for uh, export you'll have export control issues as well uh, that's uh, quite a lot of headaches for startups um India has um, a space policy for telecommunication and remote sensing but not for space. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? The thing is uh, space policy is a very uh, abstract word I would say mm-hmm. because uh, there is you know like so many aspects of space policy where you can talk about international cooperation you can talk about uses of space uh, for peaceful use it could you could talk about uh, mm-hmm. space debris you could talk about so many things as a part of uh, mm-hmm. your space policy right, right? but then uh, for the industry what is interesting is uh, not really i would say it's not really a space policy it's more just a process essentially you could call that as a space policy in a certain way uh, because you know when you when most people talk about space policy they talk about the country's mm-hmm. interest of being in line with the outer space treaty yeah i mean that's the way i understand it and correct me if i'm wrong but normally a policy it's a very short high level statement of what a country wants to do in this space so it just outlines what the objectives are and some of the principles under which those objectives will be achieved 
and then from that is where the um, legislation comes, which actually makes it possible for small startups and, and indeed large companies to, to implement that. But India's never had a space policy, and yet I think there was a draft space bill, wasn't there? Yeah, so uh, this is uh, the confusion at the moment because uh, <laughs> right. uh, essentially, you know, the draft policy that ISRO has put out, I think, is uh, they are trying to satisfy the international obligations. Right. But by imposing heavy-handed licensing uh, requirements, even before a particular startup is mature in technology. Mm. So right. it's like putting the cart in front of the yeah. uh, the horse. Yeah, right? publish the bill before the policy. Right, mm. and then uh, the whole idea is that uh, if you look at uh, the intricacies of this uh, particular policy or so on, mm. they only talk about uh, supervising companies and uh, potentially looking at licensing them. Uh, and there's a clear distinction to companies who are working with this row and companies who are not working with this row. Oh, I see. So it's yeah. uh, so it's interesting that they believe that people who are outside of the ISRO supply chain, mm -hmm. you know, might cause harm, and they uh, need to be regulated, and they have control over the people who are actually working with ISRO. So there is this sort of a you know apartheid, I would say. Right. And uh, uh, and the other aspect is, of course, that. Uh, none of the aspects that I talked to you about, you mm -hmm. know, the previous one with mm -hmm. respect to the role of FCCA yeah. and uh, all these things mm -hmm. are a part of this draft. For me, India's uh, space policy should just have one point in it, mm -hmm. uh, with respect to the industry at least, right. Right? which is that we are going to create a regulator, uh -huh. which is going to then, you know, look at uh, forming the r rules of the game uh -huh. for the industry. And it doesn't need to be anything more right. than that. Okay. And then what will happen is the regulator will come into place and we'll have consultations and we'll have, right. you know, uh, expert opinions and committees and everything else to set the rules. Of the, because once you set this sort of, a, mm -hmm. you know, like half cooked draft into mm -hmm. place, right. you are one uh, indicating the threat to investors right. that saying, you know, this is set in play and it looks like uh, all this will, uh, you know, uncertainties will still be around, but then a kind of a licensing system is in play. Right. And even the licensing system that they are trying to propose, it does not tell what is the cap on the time to right. license, who is going to license them, you know, what uh, is the procedure for all of this. And so there's so many like blank things out there. Uh, that it makes it uh, very uncertain for all of the. And is it, is it correct for me to understand that the currently the regulation that's being done is being done in-house by Israel? So the, there is no independent regulator. Yeah, so that's the problem as well because mm -hmm. uh, India has uh, had this problem with not just in space but in <laughs> many other sectors as well. Right. Where uh, the government had uh, uh, incumbents which are its own arms or mm. own institutions, <coughs> which then uh, had to be, uh, you know, uh, overhauled by yeah. setting up a regulator. The best example of this is actually the telecommunication sector, right. where at one point of time, you had to wait six or seven years to get a telephone connection uh, in right. India. 
uh, wait in a line to get a telephone connection and then you know when the private sector was ready and uh, at one point the state organization was still doing all the regulatory aspects and then uh-huh. you know the whole uh, regulator a new regulator came into place mm-hmm. and that uh, you know led to the explosion of private sector activity and you know investment and everything else so it's a similar story what that we are seeing in space today you're waiting for that break in uh, regulatory frameworks for we have an independent regulator and then the same yeah. sort of thing would happen yeah. you mentioned uh, investors mm-hmm. investors having confidence in a new startup with this uncertainty it's very difficult how do startups in space fund themselves in very basic uh, outline so uh, at the end of the day it also depends on which stream of activity you are involved in space for example if you're doing something downstream which basically uses software and okay. uh, you know a set existing tools that are out there then of course you don't need uh, really a lot of uh, mm-hmm. investment which need you know hardware facilities and so on right. so there are companies like that in india who are trying to do a lot of that work because they understand that mm-hmm. uh, doing upstream activity is challenging mm-hmm. and downstream is not that you know no, dominant no. Mm-hmm. in the state system right so uh, so they are doing that kind of work with and they have been successful doing it right. but then companies who are trying to do the upstream work like mm-hmm. you know bellatrix or other companies mm-hmm. uh, they have an uphill task of convincing uh, some people in india who are, can fund them to us you know to give them a, a kind of a runway right mm-hmm. so uh, so far uh, in india until bellatrix uh, raised a round of investment of 3 million dollars right until then for about 10 years time mm-hmm. there was not really any vc participation in the space industry venture capital yeah mm-hmm. right and then uh, essentially the people who participated in even companies like team inders uh-huh. for uh, high net worth individuals mm-hmm. mostly Right. who are uh, you know who are in there to see a new industry come up and they don't really mm-hmm. care so much of their money coming back because they're happy to see new industries sprout mm-hmm. uh, and they're encouraging these uh, entrepreneurs to take very high risks right so uh, even today that's the case if you see uh, even within bellatrix or even within uh, kava space the another company in mumbai that raised money uh-huh. uh, the a lot of the high net worth individuals are funding them and would they necessarily be indian can you have foreign uh, investors investing in indian startups yeah the, that is uh, also a possibility right. uh, but then again it should be some sort of a personal connection or goodwill because if they are you know indian americans or yeah. british indians or something yeah. like that would be uh, they would probably invest because of uh, mm-hmm. uh, the love back to the country or something like that but if you then go to a really uh, completely different person uh, uh-huh. who doesn't have any cultural ties to india or so on mm-hmm. who is from abroad uh, they will be super confused <laughs> You mentioned Team Indus. They're the group who were trying to land a rover on Mars a couple of years ago as part of the Lunar X Prize. Where are they now? I've not heard much about them. Are they still around? Uh, I'm not really sure as well. So the thing is, uh, I believe that uh, they were also uh, ahead of their time. Uh, And sometimes even I think it's... uh, you know being at the uh, at the wrong place uh, uh-huh. at the wrong time so uh, so it's uh, it's it's also uh, all of these need to kind of come come through uh-huh. if you look at uh, their counterparts in the us uh, they have been able to successfully convince uh, you know the space agency there to 
provide them funding to you know experiment further mm -hmm. and uh, through they've created a program of their own which is the uh, commercial uh, lunar payload services uh, program right, right? Uh -huh. so and uh, you know nasa created this program so that right. these companies can uh, continue carrying out you know doing the work that they are doing and mm -hmm. essentially see if they can actually reduce the right. cost to yep. get to the, the moon mm -hmm. and uh, through that they you know are giving out contracts which are right. 70 80 million dollars each right. and that is giving these companies in the us a roadmap to carry carrying further right, right. to survive right. but um, you know we don't have such existing systems I don't think so. Even Europe has such a system yeah. at a uh, at a completely full service level. Right. So, does uh, um, Minus have part of that contract with NASA? Uh, I I don't uh, think so because uh, from at least the news reports, it mm -hmm. was uh, quite clear that uh, they were a part of the consortium, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, there were a lot of news reports of uh, you know US. Uh, news agencies reporting that a NASA rover or a NASA lander will be built in India or something like that and right. that's mm -hmm. uh, you know uh, leading to a Senate hearing or something like that and right. essentially the company they're pulling out uh -huh. of uh, uh, of the race there yeah. so uh, so I think uh, it's 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 really really tough okay. uh, and, and we'll see uh, you know it's quite a tenacious company it's been around for a while back to Israel you mentioned transponders. Israel, for a long time, has been behind the supplying the demand in India for transponders. I think, from, I'm sure these figures are out of date, but uh, out of the 500 that were required up until about two or three years ago, only about half or two-thirds were actually available. The rest, Israel, is commercially buying them from other satellite providers. Why is that a problem for Israel? I mean, it launches satellites with transponders for other countries, and why can't Israel do that? Why was holding it back? If you look at uh, the ISRO ecosystem today, the manpower that they have mm -hmm. is, I think, one of the critical bottlenecks. Uh, mm -hmm. So, because you know, you look at uh, the Chinese space program mm -hmm. and the scaling of the Chinese space program. Mm -hmm. You would say today the Chinese space program employs about three hundred to four hundred thousand people. Right. Right. And uh, you look at ISRO; they have, uh, you know, fifteen thousand scientists. Right. So you you're looking at uh, numbers. Uh, it's a numbers game at the end of the day, right? And it must be funding from the government as well, presumably yeah. China. Yeah. provides much larger funding. So that is also one aspect mm -hmm. of it, but uh, it's also a matter of even if you had funding, I think ISRO yeah. has been getting generous funding increases from the government of India right. for the last 10 years at least. Yeah. Uh, so, But then it's also a matter of uh, leadership uh, trying to tell the government that uh, what we have today is uh, not enough to scale up the production of everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, essentially a benchmarking exercise needs to happen as to how a program like China went up so quickly to be able to establish 39 launches last year uh, and we're still trying to do six or seven uh, every year and uh, you know that will tell you a lot of systematic uh, things as to what can be done because I believe 
that if ISRO really doesn't want the industry to come up to a level where uh, you know the industry will build, design and build its own satellite, not just just you know assemble satellites for ISRO in its facilities. Mm-hmm. There's there's two parts essentially, right? From what I see, mm-hmm. one is uh, we ISRO says everything in government is uh, needs to be space needs to be a, only a government activity, mm-hmm. and and anything in the private sector is only like auxiliary for it mm-hmm. and they are just going to be a part of our ecosystem as right. vendors doing piecemeal right. if that's the case right. i would say that um, isro just needs to hire four times more number of engineers right. so increase the uh, the size of the organization from right. 15000 to like 60 or 75000 people right. <laughs> and uh, you know then you will have uh, an, a, one wing of it uh, maybe 15,000 people in, uh, right. you know, just the launch vehicle sector doing different rockets and different class of rockets. And then uh, you have then, uh, you know, one of them focusing on just telecommunication satellites, one of them focusing only on remote sensing, then mm. one of them focusing only, only navigation products. Right. And so you can then scale the activity up. Uh, so it's all about building the capacity. And of course, China has multiple launches. India has PSLV, GSLV, there's two of those. Uh, it has full um, launch places in China. India has just one. Um, and I'm guessing state funding will also need to increase. So it's a matter of time, but that's one of the reasons. Yeah, but that's the thing, you know, you need uh, a kind of a benchmarking exercise within the government to to take such a call. Right, yeah, I mean, you don't need a benchmarking exercise. It's, it's obvious. They just need <laughs> more launch vehicles, more frequency, and they need more launch pads and yeah. launch sites. But uh, that's, that's where we are at the moment. Uh, let me ask you about something else which is really peculiar to, for me. I didn't quite understand it. Israel has always had Antrix for quite a while now, um, since the 80s, I think, um, to handle all the commercial aspect of its launch services. Recently, this year, Israel initiated this new branch called the um, New Space Limited. Mm-hmm. New Space India Limited. New Space India Limited. What's the difference between New Space India Limited and Antrix as far as Israel is concerned? It's uh, still too early days, I think, to discuss it because essentially from at least the public press releases that uh, the government has issued, mm-hmm. they say that um, the launch vehicle and other commercialization aspects are going to be handled with New Space India. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's a, you know, like a government line of argument. But uh, from what I see is that uh, uh, essentially I think this is a way of, uh, you know, moving the Antrix's businesses into a new entity mm-hmm. um, so that uh, the impending uh, case mm-hmm. of uh, is Antrix against uh, Devas mm-hmm. uh, can be kind of handled independently within Antrix and mm-hmm. the lifetime of that uh, negotiation and arbitration, you know, goes on. Mm-hmm. And then the focus of this new entity can be purely commercial and, uh, you know, can take up all the activities that usually Antrix was doing. Mm-hmm. So, and without, you know, having the uh, legal threat of uh, these things that are going on with the arbitration. Ah, okay, right. So... But that's my reading of it, yeah. But it's still early days. We'll, we'll find out, I'm guessing. Yeah, but uh, also because, you know, at the end of the day, uh, even with New Space India Limited, it's the same uh, old, uh, you know, old wine in kind of new bottle because uh, <laughs> um, essentially what is Antrix is, you know, basically a bunch of uh, 30 or 40 people in an office uh, pushing paperwork yeah. and uh, expecting ISRO to build 
things right and it's not as if uh, they have um, capability of their own and infrastructure or manpower of their own where they can service the international markets mm. so they will always be dependent on isro to provide that mm -hmm. and isro's hands are always full so whatever <laughs> uh, commercialization can happen yeah. will be like a cream on top of the cake when you think of what's uh, uh, is happening around the world in the private space sector a lot of billionaires have been involved in space Elon Musk, SpaceX, uh, Bezos, Amazon, Branson, Virgin. India has more than 100 billionaires. Are there any of them involved in space here in India? I think at least uh, now a couple of them have actually invested in uh, some of the space startups. Uh -huh. And uh, but then you know their risk appetite is not as uh, big as uh, you know somebody like a Bezos who uh, invests a billion dollars every uh -huh. uh, year. Uh, I guess it's uh, it's a matter of um, you know time where, when some of the big guys actually need to step in in a big way. So, for example, we've never seen an investment by somebody like a Tata in in a very serious way of uh -huh. being able to build something in satellites, uh -huh. and uh, or even for example Mahindra or other such big names in India, uh -huh. right? And the whole idea is that. Uh, I guess you know some of these guys uh, they they kind of need to understand the the dynamics a little bit more and see if they could take a risk mm -hmm. uh, and and maybe that will happen once the whole defense space uh, ecosystem matures in India a little bit more mm -hmm. because for them that will open up a new avenue to service the forces uh, directly mm -hmm. and maybe that uh, provides them a significant uh, you know uh, incentive uh -huh. to enter the market can you just summarize sat search what it's providing that's part of your uh, startup experience and how your journey your personal experience has been to date yeah so 2015 or 16 uh, i was you know seeing the slowdown of our activities in india and all the barriers and then i thought okay i should go back to europe mm -hmm. uh, and essentially sat search was uh, a plan of doing that where essentially uh, you know a couple of like friends were trying to do something and then they said okay, why why don't you also join us and uh, see if we could scale this activity up and mm -hmm. uh, essentially what we thought was that um, it's an engineering idea again essentially as engineers uh, finding components and products was very hard Okay. And um, so my colleague Karthik and uh, Alberto, they were in a hackathon mm -hmm. in uh, Bremen, I think in 2015. Mm -hmm. And uh, they built in 48 hours a search engine, a, a very rudimentary search engine, mm -hmm. which you could go and search for products. Right. And, yeah. uh, uh, and people liked it. We got, I think, a second prize or an award there for, mm -hmm. uh, for the idea. And we thought it's interesting. Let's carry on doing this. Right. And uh, we built up a database of uh, thousands of products and Right. Uh, and you know, few few hundred uh, suppliers initially, right. and uh, we saw traffic increasing our website, you know, right. going up. So although that was the more engineering side of helping engineers, mm -hmm. we still didn't know how to make money off of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where I think we tried to bring in a business model around it by mm -hmm. um, seeing if we can actually build a completely digital supply chain platform where For space products exactly mm -hmm. so the whole idea here was that uh, 
on one side we knew engineers are struggling to find uh, you know to figure out suppliers so for example mm -hmm. the simplest question you could ask at that point of time is for a european engineer is tell me one supplier in india who's mm -hmm. supplying to isro or to the space program they would say i have no clue right. if there is a right. you know supplier in india who is doing space stuff right. and uh, that would be the case for many geographies because most of the space geographies were acting kind of self sufficient or most of the train would be between european and uh, american suppliers who knew each other uh, some of the japanese suppliers who they knew prominently right. but otherwise nobody knew what is going on in other ecosystems so the whole idea was you know let's um, expose the ecosystem and we thought in our understanding there are 10000 suppliers in the space industry uh -huh. at least uh -huh. and uh, the whole idea was let's uh, look at how many of them we could expose to the entire world uh -huh. uh, in a transparent platform uh -huh. which could uh, make uh, you know one it would increase the efficiency of the system uh -huh. uh, it would create more competition uh -huh. and it will also drive cost Mm. to be more competitive right. and uh, in that way uh, the users get the best of it right. and the suppliers of course uh, if you talk to um, you know a japanese supplier uh -huh. uh, they have constraints of language culture barriers right. of that nature and any uh, you know business that they get out of europe is kind of bonus they know they never plan it in their business cycles mm -hmm. so uh, so if you go and tell them go look your product is really good and we believe there's a market for it outside uh -huh. and through us you could probably get in touch with uh, some of the engineers mm -hmm. and that gives you an opportunity to actually sell abroad uh, mm -hmm. so it gives suppliers an avenue to also if they have a competitive product or a service mm -hmm. to address new markets and new uh, engineers engineering requirements right it was as simple as uh, then building a a digital marketing and uh, platform combined with uh, for technical buyers basically right right uh, so uh, that's the idea that we've been carrying forward with and it's been in existence now about 3 years yeah so years. it's now 3 and a half uh, years or right. so and it's based out of the netherlands yes so just because Karthik and Alberto are over there and no no so the we are completely distributed team like right. i live in berlin karthik lives in netherlands Alberto lives in Milan right. and our other colleague lives in Manchester. <laughs> right. And so it's a distributed team but uh, the thing is we had very good relationships with the European Space Agency in the Netherlands. Right. And uh, we also know that Netherlands is one of the least uh, bureaucratic countries in in Europe at least. So if you had to do it in India, would you have tried? uh i probably wouldn't have because uh, again um, you know to uh, the nature of the work in sat search is also kind of global and addressing global uh, you know requirements mm -hmm. so basically uh, interesting queries sometimes uh, two two or three weeks ago of uh, a user from uh, superco in pakistan for oh, example yeah, yeah. Wow. so okay. that's the, the pakistani space agency exactly yeah. right so uh, it's interesting because uh, sometimes we have have uh, you know all these countries uh, mm -hmm. we have traffic from over 100 countries right so uh, we don't know where our users really uh, you know come up with different requirements and so mm -hmm. and sometimes uh, you know it may be a threat to do such a business out of india because mm -hmm. uh, essentially if you are connecting a buyer of some components as are from countries that india may not like mm -hmm. uh, you might be you know under threat of some nature 
so that at least there's a business risk uh, yeah. out there as well mm. uh, the other bit is of course that uh, the reach of the market itself because uh, in india you know being in europe you have a lot of product companies mm. which have their own products and you know having face to face time with them and convincing them to be on our platform it has the human connect and we can sell more easily yeah. Yeah. but being in india and you know getting out of india will be difficult and expensive right. and also the companies here because they are tied so closely to the isro ecosystem yeah. they may not be able to sell uh, at a product level right to many of the international markets so uh, you know they are all these constraints come into play right. two last questions where do you think the space sector private space sector in india will be in about a 10 years time it all depends on uh, how the current uh, space startups and smes uh, you know pull together and how they go to the government and make representations i would say mm -hmm. if they fail to group in together mm -hmm. and band together and you know forge uh, an association of sorts and move forward the policy forward by themselves mm -hmm. i would say it will be nowhere Uh, i would say at that point of time uh, i'll put a label of about 5 to 7 years before most of these companies would die that's one route mm -hmm. and the other outcome is that they band together and they uh, try to uh, you know bring up uh, their own draft of a space policy or their own ideas into the government and they push mm -hmm. things forward right. and and that point of time they will probably see you know a regulator coming into play right. um, uh, more investment because there's a regulatory certainty and they're create they're creating more jobs so if you look at uh, the new space in india i think roughly it already supports about 250 or 300 jobs so it's a matter of that you know ultimately you know this can go to zero <laughs> <laughs> well i thought it'd be much more than that actually yeah. but uh, so, certainly it will grow yeah in, so that's in, the the idea that uh, it should grow yeah. and uh, so it all then depends on how these entrepreneurs uh, handle themselves and uh, you never know how these things pan out and then finally where do you think you will be in 10 years time hopefully sat search will be um, the largest uh, supply chain platform in the space industry i believe that uh, we need to expose uh, geographies that are completely unknown to people for example the emerging geography in china mm -hmm. nobody really knows uh, what extent technology is penetrated or what is the, the you know the, the supplier landscape like and so on if people want space missions to be less expensive mm -hmm. obviously suppliers need to be more competitive and right. uh, and you need to have co competition between suppliers for the mm -hmm. technology to move forward so uh, for us uh, i think it's uh, quite clear that uh, we want to make engineers efficient mm -hmm. and we want to make suppliers more efficient mm -hmm. and at the same so that's the vision so ultimately in 10 years i would say the word uh, sat search for us need mm -hmm. to become a verb so right now we are not a company that is still a verb uh, <laughs> in the daily like, usage I'll google this exactly uh -huh. right. so yeah. for us i think the we've made it if uh -huh. somebody says in 10 years so we are just set search it and it's such an exciting field at such an exciting time i'm sure that's very much on the cards um i also want to say uh, you do so much for the a new space in your community i benefit from that and i'm sure many others do thank you for that and also thank you very much for your time just now it's been really quite a revelation yeah i'm uh, always happy to engage with anybody uh, on the indian sector because essentially i believe that everybody and anybody has a role to play here for 
the support, the ecosystem to grow. Mm. And uh, I'm happy that you're actually interested in learning more about uh, the whole sector. And I hope, uh, you know, you through your platform, educate everybody else as well. Thank you very much.